Welcome to the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair's week of podcasts featuring local, national, and international activists and authors. Due to the ongoing global pandemic, the Book Fair Collective decided to move their event online again this year. So for the second year in a row, From Embers is teaming up with the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair to release presentations over our podcast platform. Recordings of these Voices of Resistance were conducted on unceded Indigenous territories across so-called British Columbia and beyond. For more information about the book fair and a full schedule of online events, check out victoriaanarchistbookfair.ca. And listeners in the Victoria area are encouraged to visit Camus Books at 2620 Quadra Street or online at camus.ca for anarchist publications and more. And to find out more about our regular anarchist podcast, go to fromembers.libsyn.com or simply search From Embers in your favorite podcast app. The Victoria Anarchist Book Fair Collective would like to acknowledge the interview you are about to hear took place on unceded Hwasainich and Lekwungen territories of so-called Victoria, B.C., and on the traditional territories of the Lilwat, Chianu, Cowichan, and Chimanus First Nations. My name is Frond. I'm lucky to have interviewed five blockaders, Arvind Singh, Strawberry, Driftwood, Bozo, Sapien, and Holly who make it their business to occupy logging roads in defense of the ancient coastal rainforest ecosystem on the invitation of Pachidot elder Bill Jones. At the time of this recording, it's day 424 of continuous direct action on Pachidot and Dididot territory, with a total of 1,108 arrests. Thank you all for listening, and please enjoy the interviews. I'm Arvind Singh. I'm a freelance photographer and videographer based out of Victoria, um, specifically Machosan on unceded Chanu First Nation Beecher Bay territories. Moved to Canada about two years ago. I'm Indian or I'm mostly Indian. Um, and my mom lives in India now. I grew up in Southeast Asia. I connected to the blockades last summer, pretty much because I was um, really interested in, in, in taking an epic shot of Big Lonely Doug and I went to a tree climbing workshop. And from that tree climbing workshop around August, a couple of folks went and started the blockades. I wasn't one of them, but I had some hesitations around First Nations consent and stuff like that. And and when I figured out some things, I started going to the blockades. Do you do you remember the month that you started going to the blockades? Yeah, it was pretty early on. Might be like late August. Oh, Yeah. 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 So that would have been like the the founding of River Camp, and people were probably just thinking about what to do for winter. And I wasn't involved enough to know about like all those things. My contributions were mostly just going and and taking firewood and chocolate. I remember asking, "Hey, what do you guys need?" And Shambu had said, "Chocolate and firewood." Um, I would go up on the weekends and just take chocolate and firewood. And you, you're saying that you felt like a kind of a peripheral member of the, of this, of this operation. Totally. So I, I wasn't really, I would go up and it would just be mostly hanging out. Like there was a lot of music, campfire singing and 
just enjoying time out there and connecting with the people and and feeling like you know let's support this in a little way how how we can and that's yeah. that was pretty much the pattern up until um Keku started do you want to describe a little bit what uh, KQs is oh yeah so so most of those camps right like waterfall ridge hq river they're all protecting this one specific watershed adaits on on uh, pachidat territories Keku's is about I, don't, I would guess two and a half hours away on Dididat territories. It felt really remote and small compared to Ferry Creek. There was a whole kind of like production at Ferry Creek, right? Like so many people. By the time we were going to Kekus, you know, in, in, in February or March, I can't remember exactly. But um, by the time we were going up there, Ferry Creek had become this big thing. And I would go there with MJ, my, my wife and my puppy Denali. And we wouldn't really find like a use, you know, this was before enforcement started. And there wasn't really much for us to do. But at Kekus, we were like, okay, we, we could be useful here. Um, so it was a much smaller community. And there was still a lot of work to be done when we started putting down roots. There was like, you know, a lot of building and a lot of different um, scheming and, and frontline roles. Um, anything that was exciting and cool, like I was like, okay, let me, you know, let's film this with the consent of the people involved. But like the day I met you, I was filming the, the extraction of the cookie. That's the, right. You know, the two ton, 800 year old slice of a fur from a stump that had been cut down previously. And that was a big production. That was pretty exceptional to be a part, to see, you know, a lot of in- ingenuity and also a lot of risk, like personal risk to harvest this slice and transport it using the bare minimum of equipment, right? Like in, in India, we, we have this, we have this saying called Jugaad, which is like, doing something with like just improvising with the bare minimum of equipment, like turning a, a scooter into something that can crush your, you know, your, your wheat <laughs> so like, <laughs> mill, just Jerry, Jerry rigging it up in, in your, I think in Canada, there's a, there's a phrase similar, like MacGyvering things. That's right. Uh, yeah. So we, I basically was quite except, you know, exciting to just see this MacGyvering of this, of this thing. So we could transport this cookie um, to the bridge. And I was filming that. So were you there when, um, when police enforcement began? Yeah. Uh, so we spent, you know, I remember that that morning, um, my wife had been the LO and the DLTs has visit, had visited and they had been coming pretty regularly. And they had said, hey, you guys have 24 hours. Um, and tomorrow at 8 a.m., the police come in and they're going to go through this camp and anybody here will be arrested. And we had been preparing for this, right? And, and, the, and the week before had been so full of anticipation that this wasn't a surprise, but it was like, finally, like, okay, like now, now these muscles that have been trained can actually start moving. And yet still, it, there was like also a little bit of a crisis because things like the Starlink had to be set up in, you know, in the back uh, with power, you know, battery packs. And it was raining horribly. Um, and I remember that day just getting absolutely drenched and just freezing my ass off and getting like two hours of sleep being out there through the night kind of thing like everybody was i think there were so many people just who got soaked doing things and then when the police rolled in mj and i we we started driving out so as the cops were coming in we were driving out and it was just this like really heart-wrenching thing because we weren't in a we weren't planning to be arrested we were pretty much evacuating while leaving our friends behind. 
and we were part of this convoy and it was so surreal leaving behind this place um and and just having you know police take down our name and our number and our car license and it really felt like oh my god we'll never be able to go back because you know they know everything and and it was just a bit scary and sad but you know within two days i was back there uh you know and 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 that chapter dragged dragged on for for quite a bit of time but i remember you know really viscerally um the day enforcement started and all the people who had come to camp to support people who had never been there but just like overnight we had like 15 or 20 new people um ready to chain themselves into to gates and dragons and things and so you said you you came back right do you want to talk about like what you witnessed when you came back sure sure so i came back um cuz i'm i was on assignment with the pbs documentary so i i had um legitimate grounds to be there and the rcmp at that point weren't being shits about media access um so we went in they still had those ridiculous exclusion zones right um but what would happen was you would meet up at a point somewhere near honeymoon bay or something and then you would convoy in with the mro and you would um be escorted into kekus and that was very surreal driving into kekus as part of this big convoy and at some point you know the cars would all park on the side of the road and there'd be some bureaucratic thing that the cops had to go through amongst themselves and then the helicopter would just land like 100 or 50 feet or you know we i was in a car that was pretty close to what they they were using as a heli landing site and then to see you know that level of enforcement i was like wow like what is going on you know there's a helicopter that was not something i had anticipated to see or I hadn't thought about but it was jarring to see it it was land you know it was so close and a lot of the the trucks the rcmp trucks when they opened the doors you would be able to see they had assault rifles perched between the two front drivers uh front uh people in the in the cab and you know it was just pretty it was a, a bit of a jarring feeling like because we had all talked about what enforcement would look like and in our heads it was maybe some naivety but there was um like it was going to be a, a kind of a a co-production of a theatrical performance that would um you know we would broadcast around the world to draw attention to this thing um that's kind of how people conceived it and and the the prospect of helicopters and assault rifles that didn't fit with that vision um and so we drove in and it was still it was still not violent up, up on you know at that point we were, we got in and um there was an exclusion zone but you could see what was going on uh even if it was like 100 or 200 meters away in one case it was 200 meters away um but they were pretty strict about keeping the media away from the enforcement area and there was a little bit of camaraderie amongst the photographers and and the media people there there was already even at that point like day 1 or day 2 i think this is day 2 um a split between mainstream and the independent media i remember you know being being pretty disappointed at one point there was um the mro you know there was a there was a person being extracted uh at a distance like 200 meters away and all the independent like I myself and a few of the independents were like hey let's we want to hear what they have to say you know we want to record it and film it and we had a little bit of a satellite thing to to live stream it um and 
the the mainstream media just were not bothered and you know cbc check ctv these folks they all lined up their their cameras on tripods and they just interviewed the mro who made a statement and then they left and they actually they asked permission to leave early because they had kind of got their story and they were like you know they had a long day ahead and they just wanted to go um and so they had to actually be escorted out early, earlier than planned. The RCMP were like, oh, you want to leave early? Okay, we'll make it happen. And they just got escorted out. Whereas the rest of us were just kind of out there being like, hey, this is ridiculous. We want to, we want to actually interview the person who's being extracted. Um, and so that was a pattern. It was pretty frustrating. It was like a stage-managed um, access. So you could only see, you know, limited things. Um, and there was a sense that whenever there was a high-risk extraction, like the person might have got hurt. And uh, Touchwood at that point, I don't, anybody did at Keikus, but if there had been a risk of that, then certainly they wouldn't have allowed cameras during the process. And that's what it felt like. Like anything that was important to film, we weren't allowed to film. Um, well, my name is Cheyenne. My camp name is Strawberry. Um, I am, uh, I guess I'm an Afro-Indigenous land defender. I've been out at Fairy Creek, I was out at Fairy Creek for um I guess over four months full-time I didn't leave I think I went for a couple soft fly runs <laughs> but it's usually for camp so um and it's quite a bit of a mission to get over from uh, the from Fairy Creek to here so it, yeah I lived out there this is my first time back at my house um wow sleeping in a in a bed and being in a house for a long time I'm curious which of the blockades was the one that you started at um, I actually just started at HQ. I came, mm. I came in, and um, I got yeah. I spent some time at HQ, um, and just trying to get get situated. So I kind of have like a bit of a different story. Over the last three years, I've been um, yeah. I've had a neurological disease, so um, it affects kind of like my mobility and my speech. I couldn't talk for ten, like ten months. Mm. And then, um, so when I came to Fairy Creek, um, I like, I have a lot of mobility issues. So I've been kind of in and out of a wheelchair, um, and walker for the last couple of years. So kind of progressing. And so when I got to Fairy Creek, I didn't know how I was going to support being in my state and what I could do, but I, um, kind of felt the need to go, um, I, I left kind of like the day after the Kamloops children were found at the residential school there. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. So just because of my family and the the way that we've been um, impacted by colonialism, it felt, um, wanted to be there for a long time um, at Ferry Creek and also wanted to go up to Wet'suwet'en, but due to the state of my health, I wasn't able to leave. And so I just kind of got up one day and left. And when I got to Ferry Creek, I didn't know like, how I would fit in or like what my role would be or what it even looked like really to be there because like, you know, social media doesn't really talk about camp life. It doesn't talk about day to day and what that looks like there. And so when I got to um, to HQ, it was just kind of more trying to get acquainted with like what Fairy Creek was, what it looked like, um, trying to figure out what my, how I was going to get around <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, from A to B um, so that's kind of where I spent my time and then I ended up leaving from there and going up to river and I spent yeah I guess like over three months up at river 
Wow. All over. I mean, I've spent lots of time up at, at Waterfall, but um, in all, yeah, like supporting as many places as I can. But like I would say my home base was River. That's right. Not a permanent location. Yeah. Yeah. River's a good place. Um, what, what, uh, what is an example of something uh, that, that represents camp life that, that the social media presence doesn't really communicate? Yeah. I would say like the things that I don't see on social media are like how every day, like there's just like these group of amazing humans that like get together and they or pool all of their resources. Like people are so resourceful at Prairie Creek and everybody, are, you know, the people I've met are coming from all different walks of life and they're all bringing something different. Yeah. And so I think that is just something that blew me away was just seeing how every day people are showing up um, to fight for this cause, but it was more of a cause instead of being in this colonial world where we're just like working and operating and being on these schedules, just seeing people showing up and volunteering and using their time. But people, yeah, the way that people communicate and the way that people come together is different than when we're out in the colonial world and we have to work and we have to show up, we have to do these things. It's like this, it's a different force behind it. Where like at Fairy Creek is like, we want to be there. We're like there for the, the trees the ecosystem for land back we're fighting for you know indigenous sovereignty and all of the things but you know at home it's a different situation and out there everybody's you know when we volunteer for our jobs every day we you know we sign up we do the things and it's a different you know we take respite our friends are my friends are always ensuring like are you you know are you taking care of yourself (laughs) do you need anything and just like this like this solid community of people checking in. And as I mentioned, my health issues. And so having people just seeing I'm not feeling well, like bringing me food to my tent and just seeing the the kindness and the, the compassion that people have for each other and how hard everybody works and music and <laughs> creativity and <laughs> yeah, and the arts and all of the things that, you know, also like I came to Fairy Creek within three days of being there. People are like, I kind of voiced it was hard to get to a bathroom. So like within like a couple of days of being there, an accessible bathroom was built for me at HQ. And then it was, you know, here you need a handicapped parking spot by the kitchen. <laughs> they made me my own spot. And right. you know, the things that we don't really hear about, you know, and, and that means a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like um, for a voice to be heard and for a reaction to be so fast. I mean, like that, yeah, that's not something... That's not something that society here, it, I mean, so-called Victoria, that's not something that this place is really set up to, uh, no. to, to have. Yeah. Right. It's the same thing here. Ableism. And yeah. And people don't think about these things. But, yeah. Were you, uh, were you present at all? Uh, while Waterfall was defending itself against uh, industry and RCMP? Mm. Yep. Definitely. Um, I've been, I spent some time up at Waterfall. Um, I, (laughs) as when I came in, I had uh, my friend, (laughs) a really kind, compassionate friend that helped me get into Waterfall. So we hiked in and um, I spent lots of time up there supporting. I also was um, locked into a dragon and arrested up there. We had 
you know, many people supporting us while we were there, bringing us food, making sure we were comfortable. And then when enforcement finally arrived, um, we were met with some um, pretty like uh, this crew that um, and enforcement was pretty, I would say they were pretty um, violent. Um, and so when we were getting extracted on the, at the last second, one of our friends jumped on top of the log that we were on. So he ended up walking in at the last second. And so we ended up having an extra person and just the way that he, our enforcement came up and just started. Um, so the first person they went for was my friend that was on top of the log. They just violently kind of like ripped him off. And then they kind of came for me next. And so I'm five foot feet I weigh like 120 125 pounds I'm fairly small and with enforcement kind of like trying to like rip me out I was you know I had my bracelet around my wrist and so they kept trying to pull me out and then they kind of threw me back on my back and I, tr- I remember just trying to kind of go back and kind of curl up and then uh, them throwing me back and then I had five enforcement officers I had one crushing my chest. I had a knee in my chest, a knee in my stomach, and then three knees on my leg. And I remember yelling for them to get off because I couldn't breathe. And and my two, so, yeah, like there may have been another BIPOC person in the flower behind, but in that immediate area, I was the only BIPOC person. And so I just remember my friends yelling, uh, my two um, friends who are white identifying yelling at the cops to get off of me and get off and um yeah so it ended up kind of being a bit of a violent way for them to kind of get me into handcuffs it felt very violating and and super unnecessary I mean I'm five feet <laughs> it does not take like five grow-in male officers I'm sorry to hear that, like, it was so targeted. That's something that we hear a lot about the RCMP's behavior. You know, um, Waterfall, like, may have been this strategic position. Um, When I was there, I was there this time last year, and and it was more about, like, making sure there were enough people to actually be there to, like, protect the totes. You know, like there'd be like (laughs) crackers in them or something. And we just needed to make sure that there were enough people there. Um, But maybe, maybe I'm curious to hear your perspective. Why Waterfall became such a, in one, in some sense, it became like symbolic. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, like for me, when I think about Waterfall, like I think about a couple different things. Like I think about a location that enforcement was never able to take. (laughs) They were Mm. never able and still have not taken waterfall. (laughs) We have lost all protection camps and still waterfall is still standing. So for me, like, it's just like, when I think about waterfall, I just think about like the power and like the power of the people and like how it never stopped. And it didn't matter. Like, I remember the first time I got to waterfall, I was just like in awe because it's like, like, I hike it. We hiked in and come into the Screech kitchen and just like it was a beautiful, huge kitchen and everybody's working. And then I'm like looking around trying to figure it out. And all you just all you can hear are people working. It's just like 
you know, people digging and like building and it doesn't stop. It goes all day. It goes all night. And there's people cooking all day and all night to ensure that these hardworking people are fed with all this like super nutritious food, but made with love. Like people are literally pouring everything into this, like everything. There's just something so beautiful and compassionate. Like just, it is iconic because of that. And it's never been taken. Music, people are always singing and like, um, HQ got hit really, really hard. Were you were you present for that? So I was up at River, yeah. Right. Yeah, and so um, I was actually supposed to leave that day, and I was supposed to go be part of an action yeah. at the legislature that day, and I was supposed to get locked in <laughs> to the legislature in like a bike lock around my neck, and so I'm literally going to leave, only to hear that HQ is literally being raided right now. And so at that moment, I was like, oh, my God, so we're locked in. I've got my daughter (laughs) waking up that morning, getting ready to leave only to hear that like HQ had been taken and had all of these things going through my mind. And and that (sighs) was the beginning of probably some of the most traumatic times I've experienced. Um, Things are so different at Fairy Creek now. Like there's still amazing people and everybody's still pooling and working, but like that was the last of like this, not of Fairy Creek, but like. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Like a lot of the culture and the, mm. like the camp living and life that we had, what I was calling my home at that time, you know, the fall of the mountain of, of holding the space for all of the mountain. And um, I mean, there's still people at the ridge. There's still people at waterfall, you know, and there's people living in the trees and, 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 and trying to make things work, but um it was it was different it was it was I you know when I think about that time I think about like this just like you know this heavy darkness and I just think like yeah it's just like heaviness that happened and the cops became even more violent they were already violent and especially to BIPOC yeah so there's something I don't want to like get into no the no <laughs> no but you're like you're so it. you're so on it there's something that is so like supportive, like on an intellectual level, but also on a spiritual level about the autonomous community. Hey, Haka, for example, like so many blockaders I know were created at Hey Haka in the way that I was created at Ridge Camp, you know? And then I saw, I saw the momentum created by people from Hey Haka carry the movement. It really hurts to see the support structure for that crushed and crushed in such an evil way. Like, I just also want to say that, like, Mm -hmm. you know, not just crushed. There's just like this evilness as well. Like, and I don't want to like bring the name, like be that person, but I also am such a realist that like without the crazy reality, because these are the things that are haunting me that are haunting my friends. Yeah, like, I don't know. The injunction, right? Okay, so, like, the injunction expires, and then Judge Thompson uh, decides not to renew it, and then, like, that decision gets over. So there's, like, a lot of stuff about this injunction, you know? Uh, Does that really factor into the way that you're experiencing this movement? I have many feelings about the injunction. 
Uh-huh. You know, for me, it's just a colonial force, a military colonial force. And when I look at it all from the top down, it really bothers me when I think about it and see it in that light because I've been on the receiving end of it. I've been arrested at Ferry Creek six times. I've been violently arrested every fucking time. Excuse my language. I swear sometimes, I swear a lot. But I've been, and so for me, when I think about it from the top down, it's just like, I just see these like people with money, like this rich force of just like wanting something so bad and then being able to use that money to be able to get what they want and the government backs, the courts back. And then my people are getting violently beat and brutalized because of the injunction. So when I think about the injunction, it brings up a lot of emotion, a lot of, it triggers a lot of trauma, you know, because for me, I'm being labeled as a criminal when I'm out protecting a forest on ceded land. And when I have, when I think about, when I think about like, you know, being home and all I do is dream about people screaming, my friends screams in my dreams because we're protecting a fucking forest and the brutalization that comes because of an injunction, you know, and I'll say for a moment, you know, I celebrated and I was like, oh my God, like the injunction. And because for me, what that meant in that moment was that enforcement wasn't going to be able to brutalize my friends because when I came home and process started, and I'm still processing, I have still a long way to process. So now the injunction's back and we'll see, we will see what happens. Do I think anything's going to change? I've lost everything. My car needs to be completely repaired right now from the damages that they've done. So when I think about everything, will they stop doing these things? No. Am I triggered in this moment right now? Yes. (laughs) You know? So where, where, where do you hope that this would go? You know, like in, in a year from now, like, where where might you hope all this momentum that that we have where would be where would it be good to see that go in your opinion it's a good question um so the first thing that comes to mind when you when we talk about you know if we is land back right Mm -hmm. Um, right the government right now has done a shady thing by you know making this one-time cash grab and for me, it's it's like the government not doing their job. They're letting Teal Jones just like, <laughs> you know, dangle this little money. So when I the first thing I think about is like land back. Because to me, I know that for sure there are a couple people, especially in this like colonial electoral band council i think about it because it is it's just such it's not it's not yeah it's just that system um it's a colonial system yeah still a way that the government this you know so-called government created um 
elected chiefs and all of those things. So the first thing that I think about is is land back, right? So that land is there because if we if we if we think about Fairy Creek separate from this being an indigenous genocide <laughs> to the land, if we think that's separate, we're wrong because we're all on stolen land. And so for me, my biggest fight is, is, is Indigenous sovereignty and, and, and the right to be able to be, when we take away land, we take away culture, we take away tradition, we take that away from the children that are going to be born, the children that are coming and everything. We take away the, song, the knowledge keepers and all of the things. So within that, what happens when we take away, you know, the biodiversity and, and, and the ecosystems that live in these forests, you know? So for me, it's like having the land back. Um, yeah. Hi, I'm Jess Woods. And how long do you think you've been involved with the uh, Fairy Creek movement? Since August 15th, 2020. Oh, dang. Yeah. It was a beautiful day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like a series of beautiful days. Mm-hmm. Did you uh did you ever spend any time at a waterfall? Not after we were unable to access it without hiking that crazy trail. Which I know the trail wasn't crazy, but driving to it was. Um no, and it was always an intention. But my days would start super early in the morning and in the middle of the night I'd be driving my truck up that tra- I just never had you know I was always doing something else it's really fun to hear about the culture that developed at waterfall and everyone that I met coming out of there like it would often do um arrestee support say like or jail support whatever um I'd go to the ACP some days when people were walking out and just it was like they were coming from a different world the way that they were interacting with each other and the stuff they had experienced when you say that they were, it was like they were coming from a different world, what do you mean? So, for instance, there was a day when I went to the ACP to pick people up. It was like they were walking out of a different culture. It was like, you know when you go to the airport and you're picking someone up and they've just come from a big worldwide tour or whatever, like they're coming from another culture and they're kind of just like landing and sort of you're in two totally different headspaces when you meet at the airport. It was like that, going to pick people up at the access control point because they were coming out of this world that was happening up there. And I'm just in this routine where I like drive and do chores, <laughs> you know, I'm not experiencing the magic and the, the carpentry and the songs and the violence and the, all this stuff that was compressed into these intense couple of months. Um, I think that was probably pretty changing for a lot of, like it was affecting for a lot of people you could tell everybody was affected you know mm. yeah they were like anyway there's this whole other world on the side of the mountain one of the things about waterfall that i can't stop thinking about is the is the rcmp surveillance right there was at, at times there was 24 hour rcmp surveillance there um what i'm i'm curious uh whether or in what ways you think that the that the imposition that the RP, RCMP were presenting there, the sort of like authority that they were representing, I'm using quotation marks, mm-hmm. what impact that had on this kind of um, this cultural phenomenon that you're talking about, where 
where pe- this this compression, right? This cultural compress this culturally compressed moment, or I don't know how you would, I don't I don't know how better to frame it at this exact moment, but you know what I you know what I mean? What was the role that the RCMP played there? Um, the RCMP created um, a community by imposing themselves on people. The kind of like the kind of manipulation and tactics they were using to uh, psychologically and physically traumatize people. Um, you know, that it's, it's so weird because it seems to me like what happened with all of that is it actually inspired the escalation and tactics that they're all complaining about now in court that, you know, the um, listening to Teal's lawyers, um, at the hearing the other day, just talking about the dangerous escalation and tactics that the protesters were using. It was required to stand up to this madness. Like these guys. Yeah. What you're, what you're talking about. I mean, I definitely experienced that right when the RCMP started enforcement, you know, they blew through Kaikus, which we had spent months fortifying yeah, maybe, maybe a month and a half, two months. They blew through it in like three days. You know, Eden, they blew through it in like a day and a half. Okay, that was a sad moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I, it was so quiet around there. And so, can we talk about Eden just for a second? Yes. The night before Eden got raided, there was you know low numbers there, and um, a bunch of people came from eight from Eden to HQ to go to the like. It's funny to think about it now, these evening meetings, right? These mass like open, hey, everybody come and talk about the plans for the next day in public. And some folks from Eden came to say, you know, we need some help out there. And we made this plan that we were going to have people there by like eight in the morning and they raided at 6.30. Shocking, you know, Mm. very heartbreaking part of what happened at Eden. Like, I feel like this has been um, security culture blockade boot camp. Like, here's all the things you do wrong. <laughs> you know, here's how all the things could backfire. Now, maybe next time we'll be a little more careful or whatever. Right now, I think things are very decentralized mm-hmm. and um, and and it keeps rolling forward. Um, what's the explanation there? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I actually went to um, last Sunday, went to like kind of a big group, like, let's just see where everyone's at. And the most beautiful, hardcore folks who are holding down a certain area are people I don't know at all. And it's amazing. And I just want to like, what can I do to serve you? Like, you're doing amazing things. Um, So what's the deal there? Like, there's people capable of this amazing stuff. And they have a place to go and uh, do their work. You know, when you and I first met, for instance, most people were like fairy what but now there's just like some certain things in place like there's awarenesses there's um getting to waterfall wasn't common knowledge for a while and now all of a sudden you hear everyone talking about this trail people know how to get there people know what's at stake people know um different ways they can work in order to slow things down or stop it all together um i don't know what's next i'm just babbling well, yeah. I mean, personally, I don't. I've never been more acquainted with like a geographic area mm-hmm. ever in my life. You know, like, and when when we started blockading, I was just on a road somewhere. 
and I would like, you know, I'd do like a 360 turn and, you know, I'd just be in the middle of a place. And within a couple of weeks, uh, I started to recognize the, the enormity of the learning process. And, and by like about eight months, I would say that you could plot me down anywhere in that area. I'd know exactly where I was and I'd know how to get out. I'd know how to find my way to a thing. And I've never experienced anything like that before, um, in an area like that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when we talk about why people keep going back, I mean, how many opportunities do we have to really like learn about a place, you know? Hmm. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't know, but, and then you stand in solidarity with people against something like the RCMP and you feel that way about a place and you know that they're feeling the same and that they're standing for the same reasons you are. And there's something pretty profound about that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it's been, obviously, I think this is a big one for a lot of people. It's just been like so overwhelmingly profound. I've always understood colonialism was a huge fucking thing that's gone on where we live. But being in a set of woods through seasons in a place surrounded by people whose lives have been affected for generations, there's just a deeper understanding about it and like... um, Probably a lot of people who show up at Fairy Creek have had the experience of being the person in the room who's freaking out about the colonial process of the Canadian National Project, whereas everybody else is just like eating chips, drinking carbonated water or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you're in that environment, it's, it's a pretty common experience to relate to somebody else people probably who felt very confident about their anti-colonial views became uh, students of people who live it in a much deeper way. Yeah. Hi. That's me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that, that is so, that is so amazing. Like, um, yeah. Are you going back? I can't not go like, there's a lot of stuff that is that comes with a bunch of people being in the woods. Um, and I can't just, when I go there, I just want to clean up and like, like who's, who's doing the firewood run and you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. We're, it's at a funny, we're at a funny time. Like I feel like it's fragile and unbreakable all at the same time. Yeah, anyways, nice to meet you, Frondo. It's Bozo Sapien. Glad I could uh, could speak with you. Um, <clears throat> I've been at Fair Creek about two months. What's the date? Yeah, about two and a half months. Because I came, I came to Fairy Creek for a week, and then I had to go back to where I'm from, and then I came back. So, I don't know. It's like I felt the call. So, I was here for, you know, I was there for a week in the summer. Everything was cool. Injunction was on, but everyone was chilling at HQ. Mm-hmm. Like, getting more into just doing art, you know? Not much so worrying about the, the blockade aspect. Like, I was still down to, to going to Dragon, and I did shifts. Did a lot of shifts. But, like, there was time to do you know, some music on the side and some art or whatever, paint. And then literally, I remember the day that it all changed. I was just listening to your podcast, the last one, or the one you sent me, and just, like, talking about how it was, (laughs) the mountain was chilling, 
and it was chilling in the summer and then august 9th came around and then it wasn't chilling and it yeah it was dense like i was there i was at river camp from august i was there before august 9th to well into september it's just there's i'm like this interview is honestly going to be a little bit of me processing what has happened just so that you know everyone's aware of that i've had like it's an ongoing thing it's still like very much so in the forefront of my head i spent time at dog mouth sorry bear's mouth sorry what uh, is what is bear's mouth it was like one of the points where there was like a dragon and like a big wooden structure like big wooden thing over the road road wooden thing yeah yeah like an archway type deal and the excavator came in there with its bucket and just destroyed the whole thing in like 10 seconds it's just like i was like oh and at that point i realized hardly anything can stop an excavator yeah those things are just literal symbols of destruction like fuck yeah dude they offend me like the excavator is offensive like it's offensive how much like power we think we should be able to harness it's excessive after hq got raided and the rcmp just started swarming everywhere and they were in the trees and all that stuff like what was the what was the day-to-day vibe like you know i'll I'll go from the start to the finish so at the front of the line you have the people on the front line either locked into the dragons or soft blocking or building soft blocks or whatever to hold them back if you're lucky you'll buy a day and the cops will just leave and do their shift change basically if they they can do like one hard block per day so we always had to have a hard block there and then be building the next one that night so that we could uh hold them off but really i shouldn't even say that i should say we should we were just you know taking up space we were just really digging our way for our own seat to sit anywhere you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to do with like ultimately functionally we were affecting their ability to move freely on the road but at the same time we also affected our own ability to move freely on the road because we had cars above those hard blocks as well so certain people were trapped in and the like there was a block and there was cars on both sides and one side was a one way and then uh no exit <laughs> block so you can come up but once you're in you're in and it was block 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 so yeah certain people's vehicles were in the zone they couldn't even drive out if they wanted to drive out that those are fucking gong show like there's people living in their vehicles. There's people with disabilities with their vehicle in the exclusion zone. So in terms of morale, it was very up and down because it was <clears throat> like confusion, I would say, was in there. But ultimately, a sense that you could probably overcome and that if we just kept doing what we were doing and didn't think too hard about it and just fended them off, we would last until uh the injunction was over like we literally had a countdown i remember it was like okay there it ends on this day we just another another five weeks just five more weeks and that was about five weeks ago uh i was looking at a chart today of the s&p 500 
And if you haven't looked at an actual chart of it, just a normal price price chart, it's uh, it's something to look at, you know. I also recommend looking at uh, look at satellite images of the Amazon. Just just go ahead and and look at that from space looking at the amazon it is like i really do encourage you all to go look at it like as soon as possible because it's disturbing you know start start on turtle island you know and then zoom out and then go down to the amazon and zoom in and and you'll see it it's uh it's disturbing and uh yeah uh it's i've always thought things gotta get worse before they get better and maybe that's where the the anarchy plays into it, because hmm. uh, yeah, I don't see how we're gonna really move forward too much from from this position. Like you had the Supreme Court of BC sit there for four days and argue about if the injunction was viable, if they should let it expire. Or... So and then you know for an appeal court to then just overturn that ruling in one day of hearing people talk it just clearly isn't serving the greater interest like everybody is pretty much on the same page with this like don't fucking log old growth you know like okay you're gonna log second and third growth like we can handle that we're not anti second and third growth we're just anti fucking old growth because there's hardly any left you have to think a lot about your values and morals and where you stand on things because you know, it just <clears throat> as time moves on, as as things get worse in the world, we're going to have to ask ourselves harder and harder questions. And as those questions get harder, your answers are going to be you'll need to have them be more affirmed in yourself, because if you're not on a line, then you will probably will bend one way or the other. Because, like I said, the questions will get harder as the scenarios start to get harder. Right now, humanity is on easy mode. Easy mode. We're playing the game in easy. But over the next 30 years, we're going to be that meter is going to fluctuate to hard mode. Like if life was a game and it's going to be it's going to be systemic, like we're on systemic easy, you know, and it's going to suck because the whole planet is going to go into systemic even harder, like way harder humans seem to have like inherent just like fuck uppery in their dna we just really just fuck up a lot and make a lot of mistakes and are very confusing creatures and in that confusion all of our material objects that are outside of us get flailed so like i've flailed some some gear i have no idea gear has been flailed we've all participated in the gear flail because i've seen it i've done it it's, you don't mean to but you know i there's some things like obviously some problems with what we're doing at fairy creek but you know we gotta we gotta look at those but it's a deeper question of humanity itself because we're just we're just a piece of humanity so it's like hmm, all of humanity needs to look inside itself and wonder are we flailing humanity like you know my name is holly um i've been living in british columbia for uh just over a year now um spent a lot of time at Fairy Creek and um, gotten to know 
pretty extraordinary bunch of humans and yeah um you're one of them oh <laughs> that's so sweet of you to say um Yep, it's uh it's a pleasure it's a pleasure to know you as well. I don't think that we uh did we meet on the front line? I can't remember. I might maybe pass by you if you were hanging around HQ. What was your role at HQ? Like what kind of yeah, like what kind of energy do you think you were putting forward there or maybe if you weren't uh if you weren't spending so much time there, what 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 do you think your primary driving occupation was uh up there uh at the blockades? Oof, honestly, when I first showed up, I had no idea if I was going to stay. I was pretty nervous about it. I kind of thought, I'll just come with a food donation. I'll suss it out. Um, I might turn around and yeah, I I, I don't know. <laughs> um, and showed up, uh, went through the intake. HQ is the kind of the place where no matter who you are or what experience you've had, there is a job for you there. There's so much going on, you know, whether it's facilitating or if it's doing, you know, computer techie stuff and whatnot. Um, yeah. And so I really just kind of jumped around. I was, I was in the kitchen for a while doing some cooking and cleaning, um, you know, and then I was facilitating some of the meetings um, with uh, new folks coming in just sort of like as a primer. Um then I was doing some comms, um, communication stuff. And shortly after arriving, I think I maybe spent a couple of weeks at HQ and then I ended up doing some um, recon. And um, from there, yeah, just started to meet people at the different camps and then got kind of, um, you know, taken off to this mission one night uh, up to waterfall camp. And then I didn't leave Waterfall for like over a month, I think. Um, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> when I showed up, I woke up the next day, I, you know, pretty much no sleep. It's just like pouring rain. It's freezing cold. You're sleeping on top of each other and everything's wet. And um, it's like I literally couldn't leave because my body was like, I can't, I can't move. Like I need time to recover. And it was just this like grimy, grindy sort of like, oh, we're here and you can't get out. And it's such a far walk to go back. <laughs> and you just, you know, and then somewhere in it, it kind of just, you know, just loved the grind. Loved yeah. it, you know? Yeah, I know that feeling. It's also like, you know, as we say, like it's a stand. I was feeling it when I was getting arrested where I was like, okay this is what I'm doing and I am going to do this. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to think about where I need to be today or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. um, what was, yeah. Like what was that process? Like the day-to-day -day process that just had you grounded in that location? Oof. Um, yeah, you just, I don't know. You, you wake up and you just don't know the time of day. You have no idea what time of day it is at any given time. If you did bring your phone with you, um, or if someone had a phone, like shortly, you know, it would be dead. The only person, you know, who could tell you the time of day and kind of any updates from the outside world was the comms person. And, you know, generally there just wasn't much coming through. And really it was um, just sort of huddling around a fire together um, a lot of the time and then prepping the next meal and everything takes so long when you're out in the bush. Um, it, it just, 
yeah, everything you're so you're in the moment, you're in the process. And that's what I really loved about it was everything was just um, so centered around each other um, and, and our processes. I got to ask this. Okay. So like there's, there's the sort of like a broad media narrative, but, um, but the, the fairy Creek blockade like movement or campaign or however you want to call it, like it has its own kind of media representation, right? How it represents itself to itself, right? Like the updates and so on. Um, right. Is there anything about like being out on the front lines that you think um, gets left out or uh you know something that maybe gets lost through the the channels of communication that lead to uh like a social media post right oh my goodness this is <laughs> this is a good question yeah oh i'm sure that there's tons and honestly simon like when we're just what we were talking about before when you are so in the moment and you're grounded and you're just focused on kind of getting through the day and staying warm and staying dry and yeah getting another hard block in the ground and making sure we have some arrestables to get in them <laughs> uh you know yeah and so not even having any sort of reference point of like what what are the media posts recently what have they been saying about waterfalls waterfall getting covered it was just sort of like most of the people on the ground there weren't we weren't worried about it we were just fighting the fight and and trying to yeah stay on that mountain for another day um i don't know there's something that's just not as real about it to me as being on the ground does that kind of make sense or that sort of answers the question is there something maybe like sacred about that experience that can't be reflected through uh through such a an alienated medium oh absolutely yeah no that's and that's exactly it like there's um yeah we had some incredible photographers come up and uh i've seen yeah some short um documentary films that that folks have made and i've seen some of the images and they're absolutely astonishing and they really do like kind of yeah some of those images it's like time stops you know and I look back at them and I'm like oh yeah wow you know it brings up so much um but even that like it doesn't entirely like encapsulate what what that time was like um you have to like really be there like human in human form like go and take the walk and stand with us and I think that you know if there could be some way of um you know channeling that and i don't know through what platforms but just that message of like actually be here you know come be with us for me the calling was uh just something has to give something's got to give um we are at such a weird and precarious time as human beings on this planet i think really it was kind of answering the call to my inner child yeah i guess i would say my soul and the voice inside that says something has to give you have to stand for something pick one thing you know pick a couple different things if you can handle it all at the same time and just having that faith and trust that others were going to stand up beside me and others are going to be standing up about other things other issues you know, whether you're standing for old growth, whether you're standing beside um, 
indigenous people of any nation you know when you're standing with indigenous people in Canada you're standing up with indigenous people internationally you know whether it's you know what whatever your cause is whatever your injustices that you're facing in your life um you can do something about it and direct action is just yeah blown my mind and opened up my whole world as to what we can do as human beings when we get our shit together (laughs) (laughs) um honestly yeah like if if we do want to save our planet this has got to be way bigger than fairy creek this has to be way bigger people actually have to you know get out of their nine to five for once and get on the streets start walking together that's what i hope for and i hope that in that you know we can we can successfully organize like we've done at fairy creek and you know um come together for common good holly Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me this morning. Thank you so much, Simon. It's been awesome to chat with you. And yeah, look forward to spending more time. Thank you so much um, (laughs) uh, for talking to me, Bozo Sapien. I'm really glad we got to talk. Um, Yeah, okay. Well, we'll keep in touch. Driftwood, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation (laughs) with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for um, thanks for having me participate. Arvid, you know, I don't think that there are too many people who could uh, really tie a lot of this together like you can. It's been great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah. Have a good day. Hey. Yeah, buddy. Bye. Right on. Take care. It's just it's an honor. Thank you so much, uh, Strawberry, for for taking some time to to talk with me in this conversation here. Thank you. I'm so blessed. Like, I'm so glad this happened. Like, yeah. I hesitate to ask you to take any more time. You've given me so much. Is there is any is there anything else that um that you feel uh needs to be said? Abolish the <laughs> abolish the government and the RCMP. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fuck the colonial state. Fuck the colonial fucking state. That's all I can say. Yeah. Land back. <laughs> I am so bored. What a lame Sunday. I hate it. Let's check Facebook. Ugh, Facebook. What is this? Food not bombs? Cook yummy food? Meet cool people. Stop food waste. No experience necessary. Not Bombs is serving free meals to everyone. Sundays, 4 p.m. at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen territory. Come eat with us, drop off food, or support our kitchen. We are looking for volunteers to help chopping, cooking, and serving food, or to help with computer tasks. Check Food Not Bombs Victoria on Facebook to find out where we cook. For inquiries about volunteering and to join our listserv, please mail to vicfnb at lists.resist.ca or check out our Facebook page, Food Not Bombs Victoria. Food Not Bombs, free meals every Sunday at 4 p.m. 
at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen territory. Free the food! <laughs>